Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and verses 9 through 20. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy Word, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin." May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our exposition focusing upon verses 13 and 14. As we've said in weeks past, the Apostle Paul is here demonstrating the universal guilt of the human race. Jews and Gentiles, we're all under sin. We're all guilty. We're all unrighteous, ungodly, and in need of the perfect righteousness of Christ as our substitute that we might be acceptable before God's throne of justice because in ourselves, whether it's our thoughts, our words, our actions, No matter where we go to try to find a a perfect righteousness in our lives, we fall short of the glory of God. Paul is using Old Testament Scripture passages. Verse 10 says, as it is written. So he's citing Old Testament passages, especially because this would have held weight with the Jews who were tempted to refuse the righteousness of Christ. In, in, In place, they would put their own religious obedience, their circumcision, their law-keeping, refusing to submit to the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. So he's seeking to disabuse them of that false claim to righteousness by showing that mankind in its original condition, conceived and born in sin, is in need of a Savior, a perfect righteousness that can only be obtained through Jesus Christ. But picking up in verses 13 and 14, as he's 
giving the biblical characterization of fallen man. He says their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So in previous verses, we've looked at man's unrighteous moral character and conduct. There is none righteous. No, not one. We've looked at uh, the, the effects of sin on the human mind. There is none who understands. We've looked at the effect of sin upon the human will. Nobody seeks after God. They're all distracted and turning aside which way left to the left or to the right. Whatever way, they're turning away from God, not seeking God, not desiring Him, and seeking Him with all of their heart. And none of them does good. We talked about that last time. That though there are many outwardly good things that men of this world are able to perform that are beneficial for society, yet they're dead works. They're bad good works because they're not done in submission to God as an act of worship and gratitude toward the God who puts the breath in their nostrils. But here we're told it's not just the thoughts and desires and outward actions of the fallen human being that is unacceptable to God, but it is their words. Their words. And we can say our words. Because even if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to recognize that what is said here of fallen humanity remains in your sinful flesh, in your remaining sin, that when you seek to do good, evil, Paul says, Romans 7, is present with you. These same tendencies need to be defeated, need to be fought and overcome by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. So this is relevant for all of us. It's talking about our words. Now it's nearly impossible to overestimate the significance of the spoken word. If you look at just the way the world is. Think about human speech. Think about the ability to communicate thoughts and ideas to other people. We're not talking about animal grunts, you know, or something like that. We're talking about intelligent thoughts and ideas being articulated and the spoken word being, as it were, a bridge between mind and matter where things of this world um, can be identified, named, classified. And the minds of men are able to use the vibration of their vocal cords to communicate in a tangible way the thoughts and ideas by which they analyze and evaluate and classify their experience and, and the world around them. And so, human speech enables the mind to articulate these thoughts into a tangible form. And so, it is a bridge between mind and matter. It's also a bridge between mind and mind. Because as one mind thinks and then articulates that in tangible vibrations using the vocal cords by way of human language, human speech, the, the tangible organs of the other human being are able to bring those things and interpret those things through the ears 
and through the mind in an intelligible way. And so thoughts and ideas are communicated from one mind to another mind by way of physical processes of human language. This is amazing. Uh, This is something that scientists really can't explain, especially evolutionary scientists, because all human language is learned by observation. And there's a certain window of time early in human development where that must take place. And if it doesn't take place, it's very unlikely that it's ever going to take place. And so you can come up with all kinds of theories, just like theories of how life came from non-life and intelligence came from non-intelligence and something came from nothing. Well, it's the same problem for the evolutionary scientists that where did human language come from? Because everybody has learned it from somebody else who knew it. That There's never any uh, indication that, that somebody gained this ability to speak and communicate intelligently and intellectually uh, just in, in a sort of evolutionary way. And there's no, there's no gap, there's, or there's no ability to fill the gap between uh, mindless grunts of an animal and the intelligent, articulate speech of a human being. But in any event, even from that standpoint, it's impossible to overestimate the significance of the spoken word. But biblically speaking, that is also the case. Because the spoken word really brings us back to the being of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so, within the triune God, you have the Father. And He, as it were, speaks His Son, whom He begets. I mean, the Scriptures use many uh, terms to refer to the relationship in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. We can think of the Son being begotten in terms of Him being the Son. Uh, We can see Him as the brightness of the Father's glory in terms of the imagery of a Son shining. He's the shining forth. He's the express image of the Father's person. Uh, He's the Word of the Father. These all refer to the eternal generation of the Son, equal in power and glory. But but even within the Godhead, there is communication. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit, the breath, the outbreathing of the Father and the Son. And the Spirit uh, is the one who has breathed out the Word of the Scripture. So all these are communicative terms. Within God's nature, there is a communion. There is a let us make man. There, there, there is a, a unity of being and there is a communion of love and communication. And you can see that in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the reality of that relationship and communion in His being is brought forth and reflected in the way that He makes the world. And so, the Son who is the eternal Word of the Father is the means by which the Father speaks all things into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. John 1 says that this eternal Word was also the Word by which the heavens were made. And when God creates the beasts of the field, um, He speaks them into existence. And when He makes man, let us make man in our image. And one of the ways in which He makes man in His image is with the ability to think, reason, have knowledge, and then articulate and communicate these things. 
There's a let us within the Godhead. There is a let us within the human race. And we have this ability, this image of God, this reflection of His character as a relational God. Three persons, one God. The God who can say, you are my Son from all eternity has enabled us as His image bearers to say to our children, you are my son, you are my daughter. Indeed, when God made man and put him in the garden and eventually said it's not good for him to be alone. Why? Well, you know, the conversation with the animals just wasn't wasn't, uh, sufficient there. So God makes a woman and He says, this is my flesh. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. My friends, the image of God is largely consisting of human speech. You you can't understand the image of God without understanding the ability to communicate. The chief end of man as an image bearer is what? To glorify and enjoy God. Well, how do we do that? By singing His praises, by worshiping Him as a living sacrifice, uh, by hearing His Word and responding back with our words of gratitude and prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. The image of God, the chief end of man, is, is inseparable from this idea of speech and communication. Even in the fall of mankind. How did sin enter the world? Well, there's this conflict between God's words that He had spoken to Adam His command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the other hand, Satan's words as he's seeking to deceive Eve and get her to just hold God's words a little bit more loosely and eventually grab hold of his lying and deceptive words. That's how sin entered into this world, into humanity through words, through a conflict of words, through spoken words by the serpent. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ is centered on the spoken Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And Paul says we need to send preachers so that they can speak this Word of the Gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. People are not going to be saved apart from the spoken Word. Hearing in their ears tangible Uh, vibrations of the sound of human language communicating the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, that kind of speech, we're told, is not just the voice of a preacher, but it's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. John 5, verse 25. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. So, you're not going to be saved without the spoken Word. That's how Jesus raises people from the dead and gives them life and salvation. It's also the case that everything is leading toward The spoken word. The world to come is dominated by the idea of speech, of words. In fact, in that same passage in John chapter 5, Jesus goes on to speak of the last judgment, the last day. He says in verse 28, For the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear His voice 
1 Thessalonians 4 says that there will be the voice of an archangel. That could be Christ, the ruler of the angels there. There's debate there, but it's a voice. And it says he will descend with a shout. I think that's definitely the voice of Christ. And here we're told the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Matthew 12:36 and following tells us that by our words, even our idle words, even words that we just say flippantly, we're not thinking too much about, we're just, you know, on autopilot, we will be judged by our words. By our words, we'll be justified. By our words, we will be condemned. So when we're judged at the last day, if we're sent to hell, one of the reasons is going to be our words. And as Christians, when our fruit is evaluated, one of the things that's going to be evaluated is our words in the final judgment. Even every idle word will come into judgment. And at the last day, the unconverted will be crying out, Lord, Lord, they'll be speaking. And for all eternity in hell, they'll be weeping and gnashing their teeth and no doubt some type of intelligible outcry of anguish, even as the righteous in glory sing the praises of God, worship around His throne day and night, and rejoice in the presence of Christ. The world to come. But the here and now is also greatly dependent upon words. And we take this for granted. We forget about this. But listen to what James chapter 3 says about the impact that our words have here and now in this life and in this world. James 3.3 3, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, that is a little body part, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. What is James saying? Well, he gives positive illustrations of the positive impact or influence of the tongue It can steer us, just as it steers a a mighty seafaring vessel with this little rudder, even so the tongue is that rudder that enables us to steer our lives in a path of righteousness. It's, It's useful. It's beneficial. It brings order and clarity and direction to our lives so that we don't get off course in a life of sin. But the, the, the tongue can also be like a little spark that causes an entire forest to be burned to the ground. And it's set on fire by the course of sinful nature, even by hell itself. Now it's interesting there, it, it's not specifically talking about your tongue as it impacts other people, though that for sure is part, is part of the equation. But the emphasis here 
is on the tongue steering you. Your words impact your thoughts. Okay, You can be influenced by what other people say to you, but nobody's going to influence you more than the things that you say to yourself. Jesus talks in the parable of the rich fool how this guy is sitting back with all of his wealth and he's saying, uh, soul, you know, be comforted. You, you've got everything you need for a long period of time. You know, be satisfied in your earthly wealth. He's talking to himself. Psalm 42, the believer, the psalmist. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope now in God. He's talking to himself. What you say, not just talking to yourself, but just what you say even in your daily life, what you say impacts your life. It either steers you in the right direction or in the wrong direction. And I'm not going to bridge to some kind of... uh, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, name it, claim it. But there is something there that's true. How we speak impacts ourselves and certainly it impacts other people as well. Proverbs is replete with references to human speech. Proverbs 15.4, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So you can see that that's a very high ceiling and a low uh, basement, I guess you could say. A low floor. Your tongue, if it's wholesome and healthy and used in a God-honoring way, is a tree of life and refreshment for yourself and others. But perverseness and ungodliness in your tongue is going to break your spirit and probably other people's as well. Proverbs 18, verse 21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that. Death and life. I mean, you can't boil it down any more profoundly than that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because we tend to minimize the significance of our words. Well, I was just saying that or oh, I didn't really mean that, or oh, it was just, it was just something I said. Or uh, we, we don't tend to think of our words the way Isaiah thought of his words. The first thing he was convicted of when he was in the presence of a holy God was his words. And in terms of what we know of his speech, he was a fairly godly man, maybe the most godly individual that, on the face of the earth at that time, based upon the prophecies that he wrote. Some of the most articulate and worshipful prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he's convicted of his sins of speech. So we can't, we really can't, um, we can't underestimate this. We have to take it seriously. Now, according to Paul, what God has created good, mankind has polluted. It's not a tree of life. It's not a source of life and refreshment in this fallen world. The tongue, the mouth, the throat, the lips, human speech has become a cesspool of sinful words. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And we're going to look at 
these between uh, our morning and evening service here, but I just want to point out uh, the deceitfulness of sin, right? If we're honest, we recognize this is the character of the words that are used in our society. If we think about our family, if we think about the workplace, if we think about entertainment, television, politics, if we think of all the things that are said in all the different contexts, if you think about the sporting event that you watched and how they, you know, all of a sudden the sound had to go in and out at times and you could read the lips of the athlete and what he or she was saying. Okay, we, we are, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that this is exactly what human speech has become. And yet, yet another example of human speech, uh, we candy coat it. We pretend that's not the case. Uh, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The world wants to present itself as, as if it's just this wonderful place to live and everybody loves each other and there's this this aura and this atmosphere, my friends, it's a lie. And Paul is telling us to, to cut through the nonsense and get to the core of what causes this world to be what it is. It's sin. It's a cesspool of sinful speech. Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, but he also acknowledges in a largely backslidden era of God's covenant people, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And if the world is going to understand its need for Jesus Christ, then it has to understand this, right? Paul's not wasting our time here. He puts this in so that people will know their need for Christ. So that people, instead of taking the Bible lightly, turning religion into a frivolous enterprise, they will take it seriously like Isaiah and say, if God is who He says He is, and if His law says what I think it's saying, then I am a man of unclean lips and I need to be forgiven. I need a Savior. I need the King of glory to come and touch my lips. I need salvation. Paul is telling us why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And this world needs to know the reality of sinful speech. Otherwise, it's not going to see any need for the cross of Calvary. It's not going to see any need for the Gospel itself. The Gospel is not good news if we don't understand the utter cesspool of sinful words that we live in. So let's look at what Paul says. He says that there are these filthy words that dominate human society. Their throat is an open tomb. He's quoting Psalm 5 verse 9, which we sang. He's speaking of filthy words. I mean, what do you find in an open tomb? It's, it's a rotting carcass. It's a dead body. It smells bad. You think of Lazarus at the tomb. His sister says, behold, he stinketh. It stinks. It's filthy. It's ugly. It's foul. It's rotten. It's unclean. And this refers to the rampant sinful speech in, in the areas of sexuality and perversion and dehumanizing racist uh, types of speech, disgusting forms of speech. So there's sexuality, perversion, racism, things that are just foul and disgusting in themselves and just, just bringing them up. And oftentimes, the justification for dwelling upon these foul themes is humor. That's how we're tempted to put up with it. 
That's how we're tempted at times perhaps to chuckle at it. That's how we're tempted perhaps to participate in it. Why? Because there's something about it where we can find it to be humorous. But Paul doesn't find it humorous because it's condemning us in the sight of a holy God who gave us the amazing gift of speech to be a tree of life, to be a source of purity and a source of goodness and blessing not a source of foul and filthy rhetoric. And you see this with the the Pharisees. These were religious people. These were people that would, uh, would always be at the synagogue. They would always be engaged in all the outward religious ceremonies. But listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. He goes on, verse 27, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So this image of an open tomb, I think what it's actually saying here is that The human heart is the tomb itself where there is just foulness and filthiness inside the human heart. And it's able to be kept under wraps. It's able to be kept uh, from, from spewing forth its foulness to some extent. But it's through the mouth, it's through the throat that there's an open passageway for all of those foul fumes at times in their perversity, in their immorality, in their uh, hatred and dehumanizing and disgusting character to, to flow forth. So the mouth, the throat, is the opening to the tomb, if you will. And it's really the human heart that is foul and disgusting and rotting in its sinfulness. Out of the heart, Jesus says, Matthew 12, out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You say, well, I was just saying that. I didn't really mean that. Well, it's not just that out of the heart the mouth speaks, but it's out of the abundance of the heart. right? So if if it gets to the point where I say something that's sinful, that's not just telling me that, oh, there was a little bit of that in my heart. That's telling me that there's an abundance of that in my heart and it just overflowed through my mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. To the pure in heart, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing is pure. Titus 1, 15 and 16. So, it's these filthy words that are coming from a filthy heart. And as I said, we use our excuses. We, we excuse it. We say, well, it's humor. It's entertainment. Maybe I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to stream it on my, uh, on my device on my uh, tablet, my iPad, my television. I'm going to stream it in. It's, this is normal. This is pop culture. This is what most people are saying and doing. My friends, Paul says otherwise. These are filthy words. These are corrupt words. And in some sense, the church can be more guilty of this than others. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. So it wasn't just they were talking about stuff they shouldn't be talking about. They were actually doing it. But the point is, 
even the pagan, immoral Gentiles in a world of the first century that had everything you want to see in our society that, that frightens you, it was there. It was all there. And even the Gentiles, unconverted people among the pagans, uh, were hesitant to speak of these things. And these things were not only being spoken about, but they were happening in the church. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish joking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So it's very clear. The filthy words, it's tempting. Some of us in our background, we picked up words here or there and we struggle to get rid of them. Our mind brings them back. There's sinful flesh in our hearts and sometimes it bubbles forth and we need to repent. The key is to repent. The key is to recognize that it's a sin and to fight against it. Not to say, well, it's not a problem. It's no big deal. If there are sexual or perverse uh, forms of speech, innuendo, you know, things that people associate with a vacuum cleaner, but I hate to break it to you, it's not uh, didn't originate from a vacuum cleaner, and you're using these kinds of words, just recognize I need to, I need to veer in a different direction. There's so many words in the English language that I could use to avoid sexualized words, perverse words. Um, words that are just foul and disgusting and, and bring to mind these sins that Paul says are worthy of destruction. So it's not funny. It's not a joke. And that's how our society, those of us that have lived for at least a, a few decades now, we know that's how it started, right? That's how all the perversion came in. People joked about it. Saturday Night Live paves the way and eventually the Supreme Court affirms these things. So recognize that's the pathway to perversion is through the speech, through, through our words. It's the rudder that, I mean, why do we complain about the role of the media in our culture? Because the media is able to use the spoken word to desensitize people and steer them in the wrong direction and kindle a fire that creates a conflagration of perversion and immorality. So we need to look for that same dynamic in our own lives and recognize that the flesh is going to gravitate and be tempted toward these things. We also need to be convicted that these things are sinful and that we need Christ. We need Christ. Christ, we, we saw in Psalm 45.2, has gracious words upon His lips. The Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 50 verse 4, speaks words that are seasonable to impart grace and encouragement to those who are suffering. As I mentioned before the service, it's said of Jesus, even by His enemies, that no one ever spoke like this man. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says a number of things concerning 
the words that he used. Why is it that no one ever spoke like this man? Well, John 8.28, Jesus says, I am He, and I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. As My Father taught Me, I speak these things. John chapter 12, verse 49, similarly, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, your speech as as a believer is identical with the dynamic here with the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man mediator who receives this commission from the Father to say and do and fulfill all that God's law commands and to redeem His people. But I will say that the same law that Jesus fulfilled, the same lawgiver that Jesus obeyed, it's the same for you. It's the same for me. The same mindset that was in Christ regarding His words that what he should say and what he should speak ought to come from the command of God. Ought to come from what God has called him to do. The agenda, the objectives that God has given for human speech. That is how our words ought to be regulated. Jesus is our perfect example in that. But in addition, Jesus is our Savior. So, there was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. And that sets an example for us to walk in his steps. Yes, that is true. But in addition to making that point, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Right after making every point that I just made, speaking of his his perfect, sinless speech as an example for us to follow in his steps, verse 21 Notice verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So as you're convicted of the foul and filthy speech that has come out of your mouth, recognize it's not just Uh, marching orders for you to immediately begin to try to slay the giants of sin in your life. But first and foremost, recognize that what Jesus did in fulfilling the law in His words, in His attitude, in His heart, in His life, it was on your behalf, dear believer. He did it for you. He suffered the penalty that your sins deserve. He was numbered among the transgressors. Those people on His right and on His left who were mocking Him, using their mouths to mock and scorn the Son of God. One of them repented and He saved Him. So there's an example of His grace to those who use their mouths for sinful and filthy and foul things. But the Lord Jesus Christ was gracious. And He perfectly sustained the punishment for sin and perfectly fulfilled this command that the the words of our mouth, as we sang in the meditations of our heart, ought to be pleasing before God. Jesus was that in all its perfection. And He rose again from the dead 
so that you can be cleansed of all your sin and so that you can live under righteousness so that your mouth, your throat will no longer be an open tomb, but an empty tomb. He takes out that filthy heart of stone, that heart that is dominated by sin, and He gives you a heart of flesh, a heart of faith, a heart of obedience. Yes, there is sin that remains in you, but it doesn't have the dominion. Your heart beats for Jesus Christ, and your throat now is no longer a passageway for all of the filth to emanate, but there is no dead body in your heart, in your tomb. In that sense, it's an empty tomb. Indeed, it's, it's been filled by Christ who comes forth through His words in seasonable speech, living through you, speaking through you, making your tongue a tree of life, a source of health, and sharpening and blessing to those around you. Psalm 71 verse 8 says this, Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. You see, it's not just about getting rid of the foul speech. It's not just about cutting off and putting to death the the filthy, perverse language, the foul and rotten expressions. It's not about that. It's about filling that void and that vacuum with that which is good and holy and beneficial. It's having Christ living in your heart through faith, giving you joy, giving you thankfulness, giving you a heart of worship so that you can use your tongue to praise God, so that you can use your tongue to be a blessing to other people. And what are the sorts of things that we ought to be thinking and meditating on? What are the sorts of things that ought to be coming forth from our lips? Well, we're told in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you heard and received and heard and saw in Me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. So he's saying get rid of all of that other stuff and contemplate what is noble, pure, lovely, of good report, praiseworthy, the things that they heard Paul saying, the things that Paul was setting as an example before their very eyes. And what are those sorts of things that ought to fill the void and the vacuum when we eradicate the filth from our hearts? What is it? Well, I think many things could be mentioned here, but let's just start with the basic. Let's start first and foremost with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ought to be our chief meditation. We ought to be thinking about Him because who is more noble than the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is more just and righteous and pure? Who is more lovely? He is altogether lovely. He is fairer than the sons of men. Who is more praiseworthy than Jesus Christ? Who did Paul talk about more than Jesus? More than His eternal Godhead, His incarnate humanity, 
His suffering, His obedience, His love by which He offered up Himself to save His people from their sins. His victorious resurrection. His triumphant ascension into glory. His kingship. His great commission. His gospel. His building and sustaining His church throughout the world. Defeating His enemies. His second coming to come and judge the living and the dead, and the world to come which He ushers in and He makes all things new. I mean, my friends, there's no shortage of material for us to be thinking about and speaking about in our lives. If we keep Jesus at the center, yes, I realize we're not going to always be explicitly talking about Christ, but if we keep Jesus at the center, then, then all the other things that we talk about can revolve around Him. And that can be a form of a means of regulating our speech. Because let's face it, the filth that we're tempted to listen to or participate in in some way, that filth has no place in Christ's universe, in His solar system. And if we keep Christ at the center to regulate everything, to think about it, and everything we say, everything we do, how does this fit into who Jesus is, what He's doing in the world, what He's doing in my life. Is this working at cross purposes with that? Or is this flowing into that and feeding into that? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, now, words are deeds. Um, but also, you know, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. Well, technically, the earth is part of space. I mean, the Bible uses these categories, but it's a helpful distinction that, that you can't just focus on your outward actions and ignore the significance of your speech. He highlights it. Not just what you do, but what you say. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I can tell you, that's convicting for me because there are a lot of things that I say. If I were to you know, get a transcript of everything I've said in the last month, how many of the things that I have said could not be said in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Could not be spoken within the context of Christ preeminent at the center, everything revolving around Him. How many things have I said, not just idle words, but filthy, sinful, things that if I'm, if I'm really putting it under the microscope of God's law, I'm seeing, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. We need to think about this. And we need to recognize in all of this the reality of the judgment to come. It is coming. It is coming. And 1 Corinthians 6 tells us it's not just the homosexuals and the fornicators, but the revilers. We'll get to some of these other sinful forms of speech and we'll look at reviling. We didn't do it this morning. But 1 Corinthians 6 says the revilers. So if we're sinning unrepentantly with our lips in, in violent, uh, provoking ways, angry ways, filthy ways, then we're going to be judged by those very words that have proceeded from our mouths. My friends, you and I, we need a Savior. We need a Savior who has died 
for all of the sins that we've committed by way of our mouths. All of the filth, all of the foolishness, all of the ungodliness that has poured forth out of that open tomb of our sinful hearts and sinful lips. We need Christ. And the Scripture says that He is such a Savior, such a high priest as is fitting for us. And what, is, what, is it, what does it say after that? In what way is He fitting for sinners such as us? He's fitting for us in that He is holy, harmless, and undefiled. The Lamb of God without spot who takes away the sins of the world. And I would urge you this morning, this evening we'll look at how we can bring this about practically and pursue uh, proper application of these principles in our lives as Christians. But I would leave you this morning simply with this. You need to cry out to the Lord like Isaiah. Take some time this afternoon. Take some time today. Go before the Lord and say, Lord, woe is me. I am undone. I am hopeless and disqualified for Your presence. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Lord, would You touch my lips? Would You apply the perfect righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ to purge me to cleanse me. And my friends, you need to believe that. You need to be cleansed. You need to be invigorated and refreshed so that we can come back tonight and put some legs on this in terms of the fruit of repentance. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we have a High Priest that is fitting for us For we are unholy, we are harmful, and we are defiled by nature and in our daily lives. But we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, set apart from sinners, the exalted prophet, priest, and king, ruling in glory, ever living to intercede for us that we may be touched and purged and cleansed and consecrated to a life of obedience, to a life where in everything, in word and in deed, we strive more and more to do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.